bridging that last mile is the work of behavior design. We try to understand what drives behavior. We try to understand why people behave in ways they do and why they don't. Hi everyone. Thanks for tuning into Notes of Design to help support our mission spread knowledge. We have a very special guest on today's episode. Let's welcome Ashwin Rajan, a strategic designer accelerating the emerging discipline of behavior design. He has two decades of innovation experience in digital industries and he is the founder of Fabric Behavior Lab where they work with clients from around the world. In this episode Ashwin had shared great insights on behavioral design. We had discussed on what exactly is behavioral design and its importance and how designers could use behavioral design to create a positive impact on end users. Towards the end we spoke on how could designers use behavioral design techniques to avoid creating dark patterns and we concluded the show by discussing on the framework of behavioral design where we discussed different aspects of the framework and how to utilize them in real use case scenarios with different metrics. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode and on every Friday we release new episodes with different creative leaders from around the world to help you better understand different concepts related to design. So don't forget to tune in into Notes of Design every Friday. With that being said, happy designing everyone. Hi Ashwin, welcome to Notes of Design. It's a pleasure hosting you today on our show. Hi uh, Tej, I am really glad to be here, and uh, it's also been really nice talking to you so far. So totally psyched and ready to go. Thank you, Ashwin. So how was your day, Ashwin? I had a pretty nice day actually. I, it's been a, it's been a sunny few days in Helsinki in Finland where I live, and I actually went out close to my place uh, to a park. and prepared for this podcast while walking around and making notes in uh, kind of like a forest so i should say i was privileged and uh, feeling really good how about you thank you ashwin all good here as well so if you could give a brief about yourself to our audience out there sure well um i call myself a behavior designer uh, and i work or as well as a behavioral strategist and i work primarily in digital and I, as i've been doing for about 20 years uh, now a little bit over 20 years in a career across india uh the us a little bit and uh europe and i focus on this area called behavior design and i work i apply this both in projects in consulting work uh digital projects transformation projects innovation projects and i also do a lot of educational activities around this in this area Thank you Ashwin. So what was your journey into design? How did you start and what are your tips for the beginners on how to start? Uh my journey to design was actually quite meandering if if I can use that word and I would say that's that's something that I think everyone will relate with sooner or later. Um I started off with writing for the advertising and for web uh it was around 2000 and the dot com boom was happening and uh, I started essentially becoming a design documenter or design documentation guy uh in areas like e-learning but also in terms of like product documentation and it was very much a text heavy sort of a start and I do enjoy writing it's still at my core and um it was this interesting transition because interactive media was going really mainstream uh on a mass scale in even in countries like india and so on 
And the whole interactivity paradigm was a total mindset shift, isn't it, for designers. And books on information architecture and interaction design were starting to come out. And that was really intriguing me compared to the more, would you say, non-interactive world of text. Um, of course, we can have a philosophical discussion on whether text is interactive, and I think it is on a psychological level interactive, but the medium itself was shifting in terms of things that you could control and press and, and, and kind of interact with. And I was totally fascinated, and I kind of drifted into that world slowly, or rather, you could say even rapidly. And I suddenly found myself in the world of interaction design, being an interaction designer, being a user experience guy, being an information architect. And it wasn't very clear how these terms differed. Uh, there I was. And I just worked my way through the industry. So I got a bachelor's in psychology along the way. Uh, this was because I was just interested in the subject. And it, I didn't really see a relationship between what I was doing and the degree I was taking. I like I told you, you know, I was in Hyderabad and Nizam's was a cool college, went there, took psychology, uh, marketing, sociology as a, as a major, and just kept working in advertising and in the web, you know, in digital marketing and so on. Eventually, these paths actually kind of merged into what I do today very deeply. And it, that was around 10 years into my career when I, when I started to see that these things actually have a deep relationship, which is product design, digital experience design and psychology uh, and sociology and other behavioral sciences. So I don't know how someone else should start. I do have some tips because I think the, the new player on the scene, for example, is data science. And uh, if you learn data science skills today and, and, and you combine it with behavioral science and you combine it with product design or design thinking, you start having probably a pretty different path than me. So as it always happens, I anticipate very new kinds of careers happening in this next generation than happened to me. I would say you need to play the long game with patience. You're not going to find answers, no silver bullets or recipes really quickly, which will, which will really take you far. You're going to have to figure it out and evolve. Uh, eternal curiosity about what makes people behave, how they do, people's relationships with technology and interactions with technology. and being very applied because there is a lot of knowledge out there and that's great. And you can, of course, take up a research type career, which which has been mine, for example. But application is where design really shines. So you're going to have to be very creative and innovative. If you want to reach out and ask me more specific tips, you can. And I'm very happy to tell you more. Thank you, Ashwin. So let's begin our episode today with behavioral design. So what exactly yeah. is behavioral design and what is its importance? I'm actually glad that this episode is happening. I'm also really happy that there was so much interest for this episode. Behavior design, as you mentioned also, Tej, during our discussions, is really niche, still very emerging. There's not many people um, practicing it yet, but I think this will change a bit like service design was in the 90s, but today it's everywhere, right? There's a slight terminology difference here, and I prefer to use the word behavior design rather than behavioral design. Uh, I, I leave out the two letters at the very end, AL. And in order to tell you what it is, I could, in a very simple way, behavior design drives people to action. Behavior design is about people's actions. And if, you, if there's one word you correlate or kind of have as a synonym to behavior as a designer, I would say that word is action. It's what people do. 
And it turns out that as a designer or a creator or an innovator, the thing that matters a lot is what people do. You know, what people say is super important uh, because their experience of well-being, their experience of uh, happiness and all of these things is very important. But it is what they do that really matters with your design, whether you take habits like saving, learning, taking a vaccination, uh, caring for somebody. People may say something, but what they do is what really matters. So, for example, attitudinal scores like NPS can capture what someone says they will do. I would recommend this product, but do they actually do it, right? Uh, and that part, which is usually called the last mile um, in, in, in behavioral science, uh, behavior design, that last mile, bridging that last mile is the work of behavior design. We try to understand what drives behavior. We try to understand why people behave in ways they do and why they don't and so on. Now, a little bit about the terminology. I mean, just to, for, the, for the nerds in the, among our listeners, you know, you must remember Don Norman's three levels of design. Don Norman, pioneering design psychologist, essential thinker to know and understand. Uh, three level, he came up with three levels of design where he talked about the visceral level of design, the behavioral level of design, and the reflective levels of design. Now, which, which are absolutely fantastic ideas. They have, they're rock solid, they stand the test of time. But the way Don Norman used them, I think, is that he was referring to attributes of design. So the visceral attributes of design are aesthetics, color, form, things that grab you by uh, your emotions and by your senses. Um, the reflective uh, attributes are things that make you think of meaning, your relationship to the product, etc. And then you have this behavioral level in the middle between the two, which drives behavior. So the behavioral level is things like affordances and things like controls, like how do you actually act? How do you interact with the product? And so interaction design, which I studied, I went to Copenhagen, uh, did a design program there in interaction design at a school called Copenhagen Institute of Interaction Design. Uh, terrific school, by the way. I was really grateful to that for that. So this behavioral level is something that I think Don Norman essentially came up in his thinking uh, originally. Now, I think the, the reason I prefer to use the behavior design, and this is really a preference, is because kind of, I think we are more interested as behavior designers, not even about attributes of design but about the design of behavior itself. For us, behavior is the medium. Behavior is the material. Behavior is the thing that we shape. And it's not the human looking at a design which has different attributes, but we looking at the human who behaves in certain ways. And so I think also the word behavior compared to behavioral is more elegant. Uh, it's just simpler. And uh, I prefer to use the word behavior design. So yeah, slightly, you know, I needed to get into that because it's, kind of important and designers like details. So I needed to get into that. But really behavior design is about driving driving human action and doing it ethically and doing it in ways that are meaningful to humans and so on. Thank you, Ashwin. So how could designers use behavioral design to create a positive impact on the end users? Yes. Uh, and this actually touches very much on what I said earlier, where essentially... There's a couple of levels, right? One is people doing things means something. Like what people do matters. Behavior itself is evidence of something pretty important if someone does something, if a user does something. So when you think about design in terms of human behavior, you're already engaged at a certain, you know, it's, it's pretty critical. It's kind of, it's a level where 
there is a lot of responsibility and there's a lot of importance in terms of what person is doing. So just being a behavior, behavior design or behavioral designer uh, itself is kind of creating a lot of impact on users. And uh, that's, that's one thing. The second thing is that we, we need to understand, and I will talk more about this when we talk about, say, dark patterns, which I want to talk about a bit later. When you look at this uh, creating a positive impact, you want to help people find empowerment. You want to help users find their own agency, and you want to help users progress. These are all things that are universal values, hopefully, that all people agree on, no matter where they are, what they're aspiring for. People desire to be empowered. They desire not to be uh, unempowered or, or you know, uh, yes, they don't, they don't desire to be powerless. They also desire autonomy, mastery, agency, these sorts of things. And then finally, they also desire to progress from one state to another, hopefully a better state. This is something that goes on throughout life. So in all these areas, if we try to understand what these um, needs are of people, um, what these motivations are, how people want to move through these different states, and we empower them to do that, then I think we can create a positive impact. And if we can essentially use the behavioral route, so you can use the persuasive route, you can use the uh, messaging route, and you can tell people, hey, why don't you do this? Or why don't you do that? Or if you do this, this will be better for you. So imagine messaging people repeatedly about uh, taking a COVID vaccine versus actually making it easy, making it possible, enabling them to do it. So the latter is a behavioral or a behavior design approach. And uh, yeah, I think uh, it's essential for us to um, make positive impact on end users. Thank you, Ashwin. So how could designers use behavioral design techniques to avoid creating the dark patterns? This is a really important one. And um, it's a good thing that this question comes up every time. And I get asked about it generally about ethics of behavior design when I teach my workshops, give my lectures, and it's good that it comes up here as well. It's a, it sounds like a simplistic question, but I'm happy that this awareness is already there, something called dark patterns. It sounds pretty simplistic and we all seem to have an idea about it, but actually I think it's pretty complex. It has a lot of different dimensions. So I can think of at least three kinds of dark patterns. The ones that we in UX and product typically know, uh, typically these are the dark patterns where you try, they, there's manipulative techniques applied within user interfaces to get people to do things that they actually don't want to do. So that's actually going in the opposite direction of what I said earlier, because you're not empowering someone. You're not leaving them in a state of progress or in a better state from where they started. You're not uh, giving them a sense of agency or control. You're, in fact, uh, cheating them. So, And that's that's something that we kind of know in the UX community. There are websites out there that discuss it. And, and I think that's it's very important to look at those and to understand what not to do, how to build consent into user interfaces so that people actually know what they're doing. So that's the more known level or the, the known kind of dark patterns. Then you have these subliminal patterns uh, in areas like neuromarketing, for example. Because we are studying human emotions essentially more and more in neuroscience. Uh, we're figuring out how to manipulate people based on 
uh, emotions, uh, emotional response. And this happens at the so-called subliminal level or the subconscious level. And I think it's definitely, it's definitely true. It's a real thing. You just tap into certain forces that exist in people, uh, which they themselves are not aware of. And brands typically employ this quite a lot. You know, more and more you'll find, actually you'll find that products and services that are absolutely useless, things like junk food, sodas, cosmetics, uh, you know, all the brands, I don't need to mention the brands, but all those massive conglomerates that want to sell you things you don't need that make you unhealthy, that take money from you at very high premiums or addict you with uh, substances like sugar and so on. Those are the guys who are really investing a lot into this area, because if you knew, if you had agency, if you actually were, uh, if you had, you know, if you had the ability to consent to it, you would say no. Parents would say no. Everyone would say no. So uh, that's the second area, neuromarketing. And I'm not, I'm not like throwing out neuromarketing entirely, but I'm saying that's an area where dark patterns uh, could emerge and are emerging, I mean, quite strongly. And that's an area to really watch out for. How do we regulate that? How do we, you know, call for ethics in that area? Very tricky. Um, the third area actually is uh, in AI and AI bias, right? If you read Doug Rushkoff, uh, who's again an absolutely essential read when it comes to design ethics, media ethics, and stuff like that, uh, he talks about, he says that all media has a bias and media itself has a bias. For example, if you need writing is biased to people who have fingers, writing is biased to people who have vision. If you do not have vision, Unfortunately, you cannot write. You couldn't write in the traditional way. You couldn't write in the way that people, who sighted people write. That's what I mean. So you have to come up with a new system to support differently abled people. And so writing has a bias. Text has a bias. Books have biases. And so it's only natural that digital technology also has biases. It's even more natural that uh, AI has bias. So uh, books like uh, Weapons of Math Destruction. So there's, there's books now coming out where there's clear evidence that AI has racial bias, it has gender bias, because the training data that you have provided uh, in the training model uh, is, is biased or just has been sampled from a population that's super narrow, right? So that's another kind of dark pattern to me. Because, for example, when I was making notes on my iPhone with this, <laughs> for this interview, I said, I, was trying, I, was, I said dark patterns, I use voice, voice dictate and I make my notes. Then I kind of copy them to text, etc. So, so I can walk around and make notes. So I said dark pat dark patterns, and the my phone recorded it as Doc Martens. Doc Martens being the the famous shoe brand. Now, isn't that an example of bias? Now, inserting a brand into a statement. Uh, why on earth did Doc Martens appear when I was saying dark patterns? Um, you can argue that the, the phone still doesn't understand my accent, et cetera, which is a plausible argument. But these sorts of things in computers are, are another form of the early days of, of dark patterns. So I would say whenever you can lift people out of subliminal states of influence and, and put them in much more conscious states, states where they are aware of what on earth they're doing and the choices they are making, and the payoffs of those choices and the and the repercussions of those choices, then you're already being a much more ethical designer. Um, and 
providing checks and balances and and ways to ways to kind of do this is super important so for example a simple check and balances again on the iphone i had a critical uh, example now let me give you a positive one right uh, i apple is the only software which uh, the only os um, that has this clear nice display of your screen time right they, they show the screen time that you've spent this week, then the breakdown of the number of hours, what apps you've spent time on. That's a very nice check and balance because this, these things are so addictive, they're so useful that we tend to spend a lot of time with them. So it's very easy to build in a check and say, hey, Mr. Gamer, you've been playing for eight hours today. Are you sure you don't need a walk or a break or go eat something, really? Right? So it's not very hard to build in checks and balances if we decide to do it. And I think watching out for these three kinds of uh, dark patterns and then doing the right thing and keeping users benefit uh, up in front and center is the way to go. Thank you, Ashwin. Indeed, that was a great insightful answer with all the wonderful examples. Thank the you. main Thank question you. that have arrived now, which a lot of listeners have asked us, that is what's the framework of behavioral design? What are the different metrics involved in this whole process? Excellent. Okay, so before I move on to the next question, I have a tiny experiment to run here. And it's a, you know, a small game. And it's, it's basically, it's really simple. I would love you to send me a LinkedIn invite if you're listening to this. And the ones who do get two of my classes, I teach a course in behavior design. You get two full classes, video lectures for free, and you get a deck with the behavior design framework that I use in my work. Please send me a LinkedIn invite if you want my two free classes with the words in the invite, checkpoint one. I'll give you 10 seconds to open up your LinkedIn and send me an invite, Ashwin Rajan. Please send me the words, checkpoint one. All right, a few more seconds. All right, you can do it. I'm going to jump into this question. And the question was, what is the framework for behavior design and what are the different metrics involved? So this is a really interesting this is a really interesting question because I wanted a framework myself when I started in this field about 10 years ago. Uh, I, I was working uh, in, my, in my career. I worked in places like Deloitte, the global consultancy, and then Fjord, uh, which is now part of Accenture Interactive. I worked with them in, in the Helsinki office and excellent organizations doing, you know, at the peak of their of the industry. Um, but I was a little bit kind of, I was just not satisfied, let me say, let me put it that way, with, with the whole idea of experience. Like experience is something that's very internal, it's a subjective state, and it's unclear what your experience or my experience objectively means. So if you tell me you had a great experience on this uh on this podcast, I can say I can ask you to rate it, but that's that it ends there. But it, I can tell from your behavior. I can tell a lot more. How long did, when did you join the podcast? Uh, how long did you stay on the podcast? Did you ask any questions? Did you download the podcast? Did you send me a LinkedIn invite, right? These are all clear behavioral markers. So I, I saw the switch between or the shift from experience to behavior and said, wow, experience really cannot be measured, but behavior can. And so it was actually my search for metrics search for objective, shareable metrics in the design process that led me into behavior design. But the fact that I'd studied psychology and the fact that they were, there are some excellent behavior design thinkers, this field has been growing. I kind of piggyback that, no doubt about it. But that was my segue into it, to be able to measure it and to be able to do it in a collaborative way. So uh, 
after doing this kind of like i was just pulling theories and models out of different psychology you know literature and of course design literature and applying it felt i needed a process or a framework and i basically fused a few of the most dominant models that i was using these were models connected to targeting um moments thinking jobs to be done stuff like that together with models from cognitive psychology in areas like uh, motivational psychology uh, and also i pulled out of habit psychology and habit formation and i took these different models and i fused them about six different models but few more under them i fused them into a framework called the behavior design canvas the reason i went for the canvas was being a design thinking guy you know i was very used to using canvases such as the business model generation canvas and other kinds of canvases and it became rather it was rather obvious to me that i needed some sort of visual way to to organize this process of behavior design now again if you send me a linkedin invite or you go to my website fabricbd.com i'll provide i'll provide these details uh with the podcast you'll be able to find these links and you'll be able to find videos that go into this framework um so i'll be i'll be kind of brief about it here well the goal is first of all why have a framework well like i said one one of the reasons to have a framework is to actually have a repeatable process now iteration we use that word a lot but iteration basically means repeating a process until certain ends are achieved now you want to have a process that you can repeat and you can go back and see what worked and what didn't work the second is uh, you want a visual process which can be seen which can be put on a wall which can be shared um and and you want something that's living and visual uh, very design thinking right this is this is how we designers tend to work but the other thing i wanted was being a strategic designer i wanted to work in that area between researchers and designers so uh if you're working in a in a design organization you know how research does research they have insights then they hand it off and then designers have to go run with it and figure out how to turn research into design it's it's quite a leap actually and it's not it's a completely non trivial non obvious process and i i somehow always sat between research and design so i'm not really uh you know i i, I wouldn't say i'm a full fledged researcher or or just like a researcher i actively take part in the design of interfaces and details but at the same time i don't spend all my time in design either i spend a lot of time thinking about users and modeling them and studying them and researching them and doing a lot of strategy type type stuff also early stage with with clients typical strategic design you could say but i wanted this thing to be a bridge so could we have a metrics based framework that was simple that integrated real psychological behavioral science theory that was visual and also created this bridge where both designers and researchers could come to that framework and say okay where are we let's work on this let's not work on that this is a priority this can have impact this is expensive etc 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 so the behavior design canvas as i call it uh, is what emerged a designer friend of mine very happily helped me to visual that turn it into a visual canvas and i still use that design um rosie helped me like uh, half a decade ago and it still works and it's essentially a three part canvas and uh, if you visit my website again or look at some videos you'll be able to see what it looks like but it looks like any other canvas it's just a set of boxes with some text uh, against a white background and now i have a digital version of the canvas uh, on on miro which i also can share if you want 
So it has three parts and it's also three steps. I think I would encourage you to think about when you do behavior change design or behavior design. Um, the first part is usually targeting and behavioral targeting is kind of like agreed upon in the industry and in the behavioral science, uh, behavioral intervention space as the first step. You kind of need to know what behavior you're targeting and getting very, very detailed, very, very finely refined about the target behavior is super important. And actually, this step is much harder to do than you would think in a group or in a real organization. Sometimes it takes quite a while. Uh, for example, I one of the target behaviors I wanted uh, out of this was to connect with more. I wanted you guys to connect with me. And so I created this little game. Right? It's very, very focused. Send me a LinkedIn invite and, you know, that's it. I, I need you to send me a LinkedIn invite. So that's that's the target behavior that I have uh, thought for this, uh, wanted you to do for this podcast. Okay, so target behaviors are like that. And if you, that's a very simple example, but if you take a complex organization, if you take something like changes uh, towards uh, environmental behaviors, you know, doing trashing responsibly or uh, using uh, environmental resources more responsibly or whatever, or workplace behaviors or changes in, in your work process or learning behaviors. There's just so many complex behaviors in your personal and private uh, public life and your professional life that you can do. And so the first step in the behavior design canvas is figuring out how to target behavior change or target the behavior that you want people. Now, the second part is where things get interesting. The second part is where we try to understand if people, the user, has a real incentive, has a real motivation to actually do that behavior because it is user-centered, isn't it? I mean, we want people to do things that they want to do. Like I said earlier, it's about agency, it's about progress, and it's about empowerment. So. If I, if it was only us, if it was only me wanting to you to send me LinkedIn invites, uh, that would be a mistake, because then it would be like my, uh, I would want this behavior out of you, but maybe you don't, maybe it hurts you, right, or it it doesn't help you, so that that can't work. My goals as an organization or as a design team should align with your goals as a user. I might want to make money. I might want to sell you stuff. I might want to, you know, have you as my customer or whatever. But you should also want to be my customer. You should want my product. You should benefit from it. So the second part takes care of that. It aligns target behavior or intended behavior with user motivation and with uh, user goals. So we do that. And then there's a strategy within that second part, which tries to figure out what happens if people are motivated? What do you do? And if people are not motivated, if the user is not motivated to do the target behavior, then what do you do? So there's a split there. We have a two-pronged strategy, two-pronged approach. This is all based on behavioral science, by the way. So there are solid theories, research from places like you know, the leading universities uh, that underlie how we actually do this, um, how we actually work through the mechanics of this. And that's what I teach in my course. And the third part is the third part of the canvas, the third step, is the habit formation or the designing the behavior itself. The first step is targeting the behavior. Second is aligning with motivation. The third step is shaping the behavior itself. And those are the three titles of the steps, target, align, and shape. In shaping 
the third in the third part, which is shaping, we try to look at uh, what habit psychology tells us about what what behavioral patterns look like and uh, what is the basic architecture of a behavior. And we try to break that down and we say, well, if you want someone to send me, uh, if you want some, if you want my listeners to send me a LinkedIn invite, what is the architecture of that behavior and how might I make it happen? So um, that's the canvas and it has plenty of room in there to apply user research, to think of your business model, your revenue model, how you make money, or if you're a nonprofit, how you make impact, what you care about, um, and also the psychological aspects. Since it's visual, you can actually put it up on a wall, put up post-its, share it with your team, and iterate and iterate and iterate, and, and it's always there as a living document. So you can take that as a strategic design resource, and from there, you can basically start design. And so it kind of becomes this sort of gate where inputs come in from research, and uh, those inputs become populated into the canvas. And then, of course, there's some brainstorming that happens on the canvas. And then out of the canvas come the inputs or outputs if, uh, from the canvas become inputs for design. I hope that makes sense. So, yeah, that's how it works. And actually, when it comes to metrics, things get very interesting. Uh, the thing is, you need to superimpose your own metric system or a system of metrics around on top or on top of the canvas, right? And that might sound complicated, but basically I'm saying, if you have funnel metrics, uh, you can use funnel metrics or the pilot metrics. You can use uh, traditional product design metrics with it, growth metrics. Uh, you can use other engagement metrics that you use. You can also use other KEIs or KPIs from your business. And it's really a question of customization on a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, the basic idea is that people's behavior is a tangible thing. How can you define that behavior very concretely? And how can you correlate that behavioral, behavioral act or that behavior to some metric that you care about, right? Sometimes the behavior itself is a metric and sometimes what people do correlates or is a proxy or feeds into a, a metric that you care about. So yeah, unfortunately, I can't be more specific unless I work on a case with you, but uh, I hope that answers the question in the time that we have. Thank you so much, Ashwin, for sharing with us in such great detail, all these wonderful insights. So how does your typical day look like? Any interesting stories? Right. Yeah. Wow. Um, actually, I don't have any typical days. I've not had any typical days in the last decade, let's say. My two decade, 22 year or so career, I think I've seen that it has had two, two distinct kinds of flavors. And uh, the first first half, the first decade was had so many typical days and the days were all about just working all the time. I just worked as much as I could. I guess a lot of you are like that. That's why you're here constantly interested in my in my profession and learning and development on projects and not to mention being booked quite a lot. So it's, it's a busy, 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 busy time, right? And you try to squeeze some time out for your personal life. But in the last decade or so, I have kind of shifted around. I think I, it's been an interesting combination of, uh, of uh, downshifting, but also side shifting, if you will, if that's a term, because I've figured out that I need to remain interested in what I'm doing as the key driver to keep me going. Uh, if you're trying to innovate into a new design, this, into a new area, there's not much precedent. It's not an established industry. You have to 
figure out a lot of things. You're going to get a lot of rejection. Most people don't understand what the hell you're trying to do. Uh, in many cases, you don't understand what you're, where you're going. Uh, you have to go with some intuition and so on. So I had to develop a very flexible working style, uh, I would say, in the last decade. And uh, now I care about life-work balance, as I call it. It's not work-life balance. It's life comes first. Life is things like spending time with people I care about or playing the guitar or you know, doing something tangible with my hands uh, and with my body, such as farming or doing sports or cycling or just wandering around aimlessly or going to bookshops, whatnot, right? Like this very tangible, entangled stuff with the world is what I care about a lot um, because I think that's really healthy. It kind of engages you. It's a full body immersive experience. Then, of course, I work as much as I can. And when I do work, I spend a lot of time doing research. I spend a lot of time reading uh, psychological literature, uh, behavioral science literature. Um, I, I spend a lot of time looking at products and services. And I also spend a lot of time trying to observe people and understand why they behave and how they behave. So I, a lot of my professional time is kind of between life and work. It's like I'm having a great time, but I'm actually working because I'm sitting at the mall and observing people or reading a book which is connected to, say, um, ethics or to, say, data science or it's connected to, I don't know, some psychological topic like belief. I'm just absolutely obsessed with the, with the idea of belief and the study of belief. But if you're reading a terrific book about belief and belief systems and cults, say, or why people believe things. Are you working or are you playing? It's it's so much fun that it could also be called, it's so, it's so enjoyable that it's not work. So I'm very lucky that I found a way to do a lot of things in my free time, which are actually feeding my profession. And then I have a few periods in my life and a few periods of the year when I'm working a lot. And obviously uh, as a consultant, this is what happens that when you get booked on a project or you have, you, you tend to work in streaks or you just have a lineup of a few different things going on, then you're just super booked and you're working like crazy. Um, so my days are very, very different. They're very atypical. I can, I can do 12 hour, 14 hour days even now. Um, and then I can be totally off on a Monday when everyone else is going to work. I could be in a park just dreaming. So I like it like that. Uh, it's a bit chaotic, but I like it like that. And yeah, that's uh, that's kind of what my what my days look like. <laughs> I don't know about lots of interesting stories, but I think I don't know if I have any of them come to mind right now. Um, but yeah, I just keep to, I try to keep life very interesting. And I think interest is the key thing, right? Wake up interested, wake up uh, inspired. So wake up and if you're not feeling like you have momentum, then you need to get a dose of inspiration. You could watch a beautiful travel video, you could watch a great TED talk, you could watch a stand-up, you could do whatever that just pushes you out of your sort of um, inertia. And once you're in that zone of being engaged with life, once you're in that zone of being interested with things around you, then that's a great place to actually work. And I think one of the problems with our technology uh, culture is that we are so isolated from life. We spend so much time working and we are not in touch with the thing that is supposed to be the outcome of good technology, which is life. And I would say flip it around and um, have fun and be like really enjoy, 
you know, in a state of joy and, and, and good work comes out of that. Thank you so much, Ashwin, for all these wonderful insights. So we'll conclude this show by you recommending three favorite books of yours and also people who inspire you the most in this space. Sure, Tej. These are really good questions, by the way. I had such a great time thinking about these. This is, this is a great one, right? Conclude by recommending three favorite books. Okay, this is also the short pause for Checkpoint 2 to send me a LinkedIn invite. So part two of the same game. If you haven't done it already, if you send me a LinkedIn invite in the next 10 or 15 seconds, well, you can take from now on, uh, please put in the words there, checkpoint two. You can find me on LinkedIn by the name Ashwin Rajan, R-A-J-A-N. And please put in the words checkpoint two. And I will send you a free class from my new course, as well as uh, a deck on the behavior design canvas, the framework that I've created. So I'll give you a few seconds to pull out your phone or your computer, wherever you're at, you're probably with one right now. Switch to LinkedIn and type in Ashwin Rajan. There you go, I come up and just hit send. Probably don't even need to put in the words, just hit send. So yeah, a little fun gamification experiment right here to see what happens. And I will, I will let Tage know how that went. <laughs> this is so exciting. This is so exciting. Anyways, but okay, let me go to the three favorite books. Um, this is a great question, right? And uh, there is just so much to learn and read. So with this new space, behavior design, and a lot kind of emerging, a lot of different viewpoints on what this is. And I even told you why I think it's called, why I prefer to use the term behavior design rather than behavioral design. Uh, you know, so th there's a lot to think about. So it was, it's, it's been quite a, I had to think a little bit about picking three books. And this is how it goes. We need to ask why these three books, right? And I'll tell you what I did not want to pick. I, I did not want to pick books that are based in neuroscience. I have lots of favorite books in lots of different categories, but I don't want to pick books in neuroscience. The reason is, um, it's something that, for example, Yuval Noah Harari, who wrote Sapiens and uh, Homo Deus and so on, terrific thinker, I think. He said in an interview recently, he said that if he could start his career over again, he would not study the brain, but he would study the mind, right? And that's a really interesting observation. I kind of it resounded, uh, resonated with me quite a lot. Because the interesting problem in philosophy and, and, and cognitive science has been how does subjective experiences like experience, self, the self, uh, happiness, uh, meaning, uh, stuff like that, how free will, agency, how do these subjective states, how do they arise from this mass of uh, brain matter? You know, so neuroscience tries to study the the anatomical details uh, and the the granular details of synapses and neurons and neurochemicals and stuff like that. And I'm not asking that to stop. It's just a fantastic field. There are great books there. I think the interesting level of analysis is how do these subjective states of experience, which drive our behavior and which correlate to our behavior, how do they arise? And so for me, the most interesting level of books to recommend to you are actually cognitive science books. And that cognitive science is that area which studies these mental processes. The other area which you should also read, which I'm not mentioning, just like neuroscience, highly recommend it, but I'm not mentioning any neuroscience books. The other area is behavioral economics. Behavioral economics is the application of these cognitive science and other psychology theories and models 
into economics research. There's phenomenal books there. There are phenomenal thinkers, and I use them in my work as well all the time. But I'm not going to recommend any behavioral economics books either. Because again, behavior design, I feel, is a much more meta field. It's much bigger than, say, behavioral economics, which is the application of behavioral science into economics and the thinking about economics and value and utility and decision-making and all of that stuff from a behavioral, using behavioral lenses and ideas. Behavioral economics is great, but I'm not going to recommend any books. So I'm rather going to recommend to you three uh, great neuroscience, sorry, cognitive science thinkers and books. The first one is uh, my absolute favorite, and I think a lot of people will know him in the psychology field, Leon Festinger. And uh, he wrote a book called, he wrote a book called The Theory of Cognitive Dissonance. And he's kind of very famous for the, the idea of cognitive dissonance, which is a, a cognitive science and social psychology theory, and it has had lasting impact and stands the test of time, and it's actually really fun and super interesting. So Leon Festinger would be my first quote, The Theory of Cognitive Dissonance. Second book would be more contemporary, more recent um, thinker called George Lakoff, or George Lakoff, who's written a book called Metaphors We Live By. He's written a lot of books but I would, that's his most famous book. It's also probably, it's a great book and it's not an easy book. None of these books are easy books, I would say, but that's exactly where you need to spend time with complex stuff and try to get into it and understand it. Uh, Metaphors We Live By is a, you know, a really interesting take on the domain called embodied cognition or embodied mind, the, the role that uh, your, your own body or physiology plays in how we, ascribe meaning, and in fact, how we think about the world, how we perceive the world, etc. So the second one is Metaphors We Live By by George Lakoff. And the final one is, uh, this is futuristic stuff, and it's called Future Minded. And Future Minded, The Psychology of Agency and Control by a professor called Magda Osman. And uh, she's a contemporary, she's working current in current day. And she's really very interesting because, like I said earlier, I'm very interested in these in, in behavior design, helping people find agency, helping people find uh, empowerment, helping people feel in control, and not in unconsciously manipulating them to do things that they don't want to do, right? And so, Future Minded, this book is is one of the key books on the psychology of agency and control. It's still a very new space, and there is you you cannot say that the the books have been written, which just define it. I mean, we're right in the very beginning, but this book by Magda Osman is the third book I would recommend, which is also excellent material and actually very much the stuff to come. So this will be the domain where this, this field will go in the future is how I see it. People who inspire me the most in this field, I would, I would just say the, the same, really. I mean, uh, they are psychologists and sociologists and researchers yeah, and I would just name the same three thinkers from from these books that I named. Um, and I can't really think specifically of people in other fields. I'll have to think a little bit, I guess. But uh, people with passion doing crazy things and I tend to find inspiration everywhere. Performance art, music. Yeah, definitely people who are trying to change things and who are at the edges of, of established institutions, you could say, who are trying to change things for the better. And there's just too many to name and they're everywhere. And 
I think increasingly they're coming from that are non-Western. I would, I'm inspired by what's happening in, in places like Africa. I'm inspired by, play, uh, inspired by what's happening in places like India. I'm inspired, you know, to find Latin speaking people from Latin American countries and failed states, right? I mean, that's where I think the real inspirational material is, is to look at countries that are at war or have been ravaged by famine and look at what they are doing with technology, what they are thinking, what they are putting up on YouTube. And I think the problem with this, with formats that are already great is like, you know, and I have no criticism of them, but the big universities, the big speaking platforms, they already, uh, they're already good. So when someone comes and speaks on a TED stage, and believe me, I love TED. It's, it's absolutely amazing. But TED itself is a, is a brand that endorses uh, the value. It creates a perception of value of what that person is saying. So I'm very interested in what is someone with nothing or with very little what are they doing? What is their statement? Because now they can come to the world stage through the internet. And that's the best thing. We need to keep the internet open and free. Uh, people in China, uh, a complex place to be right now. So what are they, what are they saying? So I, I think I would like to be inspired more by them where, yeah, where, where, where there is no opportunity, but they are making something out of nothing. Thank you so much, Ashwin, for sharing all these wonderful insights with us. And thanks for your time. We are looking forward to host you again in our upcoming episodes. Awesome. This has been a pleasure. Thanks, Ravi, for this.